Good morning. It's a great privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Zach. I have the privilege of serving the youth here at Capitol. And um, we usually at this time go downstairs and have the Sunday morning youth message, which is always a lot of fun. And we just felt so sorry for all you adults up here that we decided we'll bring it upstairs just this one time. Now, as I was thinking about what I might share with you this morning, I realized that uh, probably what's going to be best is for me to start off with a quick personal story, because that often, for me at least, has the opportunity to set the stage for what it is that we might hear from the Lord today. And um, some of the youth might have heard this story before, but nonetheless, it kind of fits with the message. And so, to understand this story, of course, right now I, I live in China. But when I was younger, I actually grew up in Europe, in the Central European country of Hungary. My parents worked there with a Christian organization, and I can uh, remember many great experiences there. When I was a junior in high school, we moved back to America. That's where I graduated from high school, and I ended up attending university at the University of Minnesota. And uh, in university, I studied theater. I was very interested in acting. And so that is what I studied the entire time that I was in theater. And when I graduated from university, I had the chance to get an internship at what they called the Children's Theater Company of Minneapolis, one of the largest children's theaters in America. Now, when I say children's theater, what this means is that adults perform plays for children in the audience. This was a pretty good-sized theater, about 500 seats, and we would do these various plays throughout the year. My very first acting opportunity as this internship progressed was to be in a reworked production of an English folktale called The Reluctant Dragon. Now, for those of you who don't know the story of The Reluctant Dragon, I'll just give you a really brief filler. Of course, as you might imagine, this story involves a dragon, but actually, He's a really nice guy. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. He doesn't want to breathe fire. In fact, the only thing he wants to do is he wants to read books and have long philosophical conversations. And he lives on a mountain. Just so happens at the foot of this mountain is a village. And in this village, there lives a small boy. And one day, the boy wanders up onto the mountain and he meets the dragon. And it just so happens the boy also loves reading books and having long conversations. And so a great friendship is formed. But when the people in the village find out that there's a dragon on the mountain, they are not happy. They believe he can only wish them harm. And the people in the village are overjoyed when they find out that soon St. George, the famous dragon slayer, is going to be visiting the village, and they think perhaps St. George will help them. Now, in this play, it was my job to be what they called the town crier. Many of you know what this means. Back when they didn't have the internet to find out the news, there would be a man who would come through the village with a bell, yelling out, hear ye, hear ye. People would come, and he would tell them the news of the day. So it was my job to come from the side of the stage directly to the center of the stage and then turn toward the audience. Now, if you're an actor, that is exactly the place that you want to be. Because when you're in the middle of the stage, you, you're guaranteed every single person in the audience is watching you. 
So I run on with my bell, and I turn toward the crowd of 500 children, all the townspeople on stage, the other actors, they turn toward me as I say, guess what? And they all say, what? And at that moment, I say, St. George is coming, and he's going to kill the dragon for us. And at that point, all the townspeople began to clap and cheer, and we march off the stage saying, St. George, St. George, St. George. It was great. Now, one thing that you need to know about various kinds of theater is that if you're doing high school theater, you might learn a play and then over the course of a long weekend do it four or five, maybe six times. If you're doing theater in university, it's a little bit more serious. You'll learn a play, maybe over the course of two or three weeks, you may do that play 10, maybe even 12, 13, 14 times. But the children's theater company, this was a professional theater. That meant they wanted to make money off of this play and they wanted to sell as many tickets as they could. That meant we were not going to be doing this play five times, 10 times, or even 20 times. We were, over the course of three long months, going to performing this play over 75 times. Now, at the beginning, when it's all fresh and new, that's great, it's exciting. But I remember one dark Saturday afternoon in the dead of winter, after we had performed this stinking play more than 50 times, and I was sitting backstage just hating the dragon. And I didn't want to hear from the snot-nosed little boy anymore. I just wanted to go home and feel sorry for myself. And at that moment, as I was feeling sorry for myself backstage, I suddenly heard my cue. I was supposed to be on stage, but I was feeling so sad I wasn't paying attention. So I grabbed my bell, ran out to the middle of the stage, turned toward the audience. There's all the children. There's all the townspeople. I say, guess what? And all the people on stage said, what? And then I forgot what I was supposed to say. <laughs> now, you're thinking, Zach, it's just one line. And you're right. But I forgot. Now, you know, of course, what I was supposed to say was, St. George is coming, and he's going to kill the dragon for us. But that's not what I said. What I said was, St. George is coming, and he's going to kill us all. I said that in front of 500 children. And in the next moment, some of them began to cry because they didn't realize that it was a play and they thought maybe St. George was coming to kill them. And when I said that, all the other actors on stage were so surprised by what I said that they didn't know what they should do. And so they did what they always did. They began to clap and cheer. And we marched off the stage saying, St. George, St. George, St. George. When I got off the stage, my best friend at the time, a guy named Greg, fell on his back laughing and could not get up for five straight minutes. Now, when the play was done, the director came up to me afterward, and he said, Zach, it's okay. Sooner or later, when you're in theater, everybody forgets their line at least once. But then he said, Zach, I, I do have to ask you, tomorrow, we're going to do the play again. Tomorrow, do you know what you're going to say? Now, as I was thinking about this, I was realizing there's a, there's a sensation involved with this memory that um, I have experienced more than once in my life. 
In fact, I can take it all the way back to times in my childhood when I've experienced a, a similar sensation. I mentioned that I grew up in Hungary, the capital city of Budapest. We lived in a part of the capital where there was a public transportation system called the trolley bus. Very interesting. They have these in Beijing as well. Trolley bus has these uh, two antennae that are connected to the wires above the road. It runs off of electricity. And these buses in Hungary, they had the ability to accelerate very fast. And so one day, my father was with me and my younger sister, Caitlin. We were getting on this bus, and of course, like a good father, he makes sure that we are seated first before he looks for a seat. But at that moment, the bus takes off, and my dad is somersaulting backwards down the entire line of the bus, and he lands in this heap at the back. And this older Hungarian gentleman jumps up and runs over to him, and my dad thinks, maybe, maybe he's going to help me. And this man leans down, looks at my dad's face, and says, Sir! Why have you left your children unattended? <laughs> and once again, there's, there's a similar feeling that goes along with this, which if I'm honest, it's not just something that's unique about my life. This is very human. In fact, it is stamped into the course of human history. It was true several decades ago with Gandhi in his famous salt march. This was a time in Indian history when the British government was in control, and they had a big taxation on salt. But Gandhi, knowing that salt is required for the human to be alive, believed that this tax was incredibly unjust. And so he and his followers began cultivating salt from seawater, something that was illegal. The British government found out about this, and they decided to make an example. They were going to send in an army of horseback soldiers with clubs to ride in among Gandhi and his supporters and beat them down. This happened in a wide open area by the sea where there was nowhere to hide. Gandhi and his supporters stood there as the horses came closer and closer. And at the last moment, Gandhi gave the word. He and all of his friends lay face down on the ground. Ironically, this was the best thing they could have done because a horse instinctively will not step onto a surface with which it is unfamiliar. And from the horse's perspective, these men suddenly become this huge human carpet lying on the ground. And the horses simply would not step onto the bodies. And because the soldiers were so high, they couldn't reach low enough to club them. And so ironically, by doing the simplest thing, by doing nothing at all, Gandhi and his followers survived to live another day. In all three of these examples, the same thing is true. And here's what it is. The expectations that we had for what we believed were going to happen were changed. The expectations we had were thwarted. They were vexed. We all have expectations every day. We expect certain things to happen. But sometimes, these expectations can almost lull us into a false sense of security. And sometimes, when they're changed, it actually has the opportunity to shock us into a different sense of vitality or reality. Artists do this very well. There was, for example, that well-known film in the early 60s. Black and white film. Begins, we see a young lady... She's a secretary. We know she's not happy in her line of work. She longs for a different kind of life. One day her boss receives a vast amount of money 
He doesn't want to leave it in the office. And so he tells her, please take this and put it in the bank. We begin to sense the gears turning in her head. This money could do a lot for me. She goes home, she packs her bags, and she prepares to leave town in her car. But as she's leaving town, she sees a police car driving behind her, and she wonders, he may suspect something. Once again, the gears are turning. Should I turn this car in for another one so the police won't, won't find me, won't, won't suspect me in this new car? She pulls over to a used car dealership with a very awkward transition, arousing the suspicion of the seller. She got, gets a new car, and as she's leaving the dealership, she sees the policeman is across the street. He's witnessed the whole thing. She drives into the night, getting more and more nervous. Suddenly, it begins to rain. She realizes she'll have to pull over, and then she sees the light up ahead of a motel, the Bates Motel. This is, of course, the beginning of Alfred Hitchcock's famous film, Psycho. Now, this was an interesting film for Hitchcock. Before this, he was making ever more lavish color productions with bigger and bigger budgets, and with this film, he decided there were a few prerequisites. He wanted to go back to his youth in some way. It was going to be in black and white. It was going to be very cheap. He was going to film it not with a technical, huge movie set crew, but with his TV crew from his TV show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, so they could film on location. And the script was kept utterly secret, because he knew something the audience wouldn't know. They were going to fall in love with this main character, Marion Crane, who was going to die in the famous shower scene. But unlike what most productions would have done, waiting until the end of this film for this murder to take place, she was going to die barely 20 minutes into the film. The audience was astonished. They had never experienced this before. And so for the rest of the film, they didn't know what was going to happen. And the director could just play with them like he was using magic. Precisely because he had changed their expectations, was he able to pull this off? There's another different artist who did something similar. The German composer Schumann has composed some of the most beautiful love songs in human history. Perhaps none more beautiful than in his series, Dich der Liebe, in which there is perhaps the best song, which in German is called Die Rose, Die Lille, Die Taube, Die Zone, which in English is the rose, the lily, the dove, the sun. In this short poem, the poet, the singer, talks about how much he loves these things in nature. And then he says, far more than those, however. I love my wife because to me, she is roses, lilies, doves, and sunshine. The incredible thing about this song it is less than 35 seconds long. It is meant to be sung in one breath. It has only one pause in it, a 16th rest. And the reason for that is so that as the audience is captivated by this beauty, suddenly it's over. And they are left in this sea of silence. And it makes them look back at what they just heard, basically retelling themselves the same story, thereby amplifying the power of the message. By making it so short, Schumann makes it so much stronger. Now, I use all of this as just an introduction to so much of what we find in the pages of Scripture. I think it's 
practically impossible to turn a page without encountering these precious characters who again and again find their expectations completely destroyed. And it really couldn't be any other way. God purposely changes certain expectations because certain lessons could not be learned otherwise. You know who these people are. All I have to do is say their names, and you can conjure up in your minds some of the expectations that they probably had for their life. Who are these people? Adam and Eve? Cain and Abel? Abraham and Sarah? Job? Jonah? And all of this through the Old Testament brings us into the New, where I want to read a very short passage from the Gospel of Mark. This is chapter 14, beginning in verse 3. You can read along if you want, or you can just listen. I'm going to read it out loud. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Now, what Jesus says there is all fine and good. You can always count on Jesus for a good quippy quotation at a moment like that where he's teaching. But what really interests me here are the other people around the table. I mean, try to put yourself in their shoes. They're having dinner with Jesus. Or the person who invited him. Jesus said yes to your invitation for dinner. Imagine the circumstances around that table there that evening. Imagine the sounds of the Bread being torn, the wine being poured into wooden cups. Imagine the smell coming off of that table of olive oil and spices. It would have been a, a sensual experience for the senses, a delight. And into that circumstance, this woman comes. She wasn't invited. What's that she, what does she have in her hands? That's nard. Does she know how expensive that is? Did she steal that? Well, what's she, she's pouring it on his head. 
And it, I have to imagine the smell of that perfume at that moment would have completely destroyed whatever mood was happening at that dinner scene. It would have been a heavy, heady smell that would have wiped out all conversation, all memories of what had just come moments before that. And if you were there at that table with those people, what would your reaction have been to the perfume of Christ? They were so angry. And they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, don't be taken in by her, Lord. You know who she is? She's a whore. She's just trying to get something from you. Don't be fooled. But when I read this passage, I had to ask myself, Zach, what is your reaction when the expectations change in your life and you smell the perfume of Christ? I have to be honest with you, ladies and gentlemen. Usually, I'm really angry. When I was reading this passage, I had two competing thoughts. I thought, wow, what a great lesson. Anytime my expectations change now, I can know Jesus wants to teach me something. And the other thought was, that is awful. I am not good at that at all. When expectations change, I don't know, maybe I'm worse than most. I fly off the handle. When my wife wants to invite someone over for dinner, she has to tell me a week in advance for me to get ready for it. And if she doesn't, I say, are you kidding? You know how I am with these things. And I have to tell you, we've been in China for five years now. We thought we were coming to China to do a certain set of things. I was preparing myself to do them. And the moment we arrived here, God relentlessly began to change every single thing I thought was going to happen. I kept trying to build it up and make it be the way I thought it was, and he would not let it stand. And only now, looking back on it, do I realize that was the only way I could have learned the things that God wanted to teach me. What I'm telling you this morning, ladies and gentlemen, is I'm not preaching to you at all. All I'm doing is talking to myself. God doesn't need me at all. I think he does, but he doesn't. He doesn't need me at all. And the evidence of this is so clear across what's happening in the world. A couple of years ago, there was a celebration in the country of Iran where people would light bonfires and young men would charge at the fires and leap through them in celebration. This one young Iranian father had a new video camera. He was filming the celebration, and you can see on the camera his young son charging toward the fire, not realizing that earlier somebody had accidentally splashed him with gasoline. And you can see on the footage, he bursts into a human torch. People run from all over with blankets. They put out the fire. They put the boy in the car. They take him to the hospital. The doctor examines him and says, he's not burned. There's not a scar on him. On the way back home, the father said to the son, we have to find those people who brought the blankets and thank them. And the boy said, they didn't do it, father. It was the man. The man with the bird on his shoulder. The father didn't understand this. And not long after that, there was a satellite te television broadcast of the Jesus film in their house. And in the scene where the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, comes down on Jesus' shoulder. The young boy points at the TV screen and says, He's the one, Father. 
He's the one who touched my face. God doesn't need me at all. He just keeps me around so he can teach me a few things. The only proper biblical response when our expectations are changed is to just accept it with utter humility. The last thing I would like to read is a short poem by a woman who throughout her entire life suffered from many great changes in expectations as she went through suffering and illnesses of many different kinds. Her name was Martha Snell Nicholson, and the poem is called The Thorn. And there's only one difficult word in it. In the first line, the word is mendicant, and the word mendicant means beggar. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, But Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, My child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. I want to thank you, Lord, this morning, sweet Jesus, for loving us more than we can possibly imagine, and uh, for the wonderful gift that we can cling to when circumstances change in our lives, we can know that it is an opportunity to learn, Lord, as hard as that might be. Thank you for this truth, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen.